Then Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord, I pray that you will show us the time that we have come to your kingdom. That you have set times and appointments, setups. Times where you orchestrate our life and the events of our life so that we can be used by you, Lord, in a mighty way. And I pray that we will not misuse our opportunities. But we will learn what you have given us. And we will use it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you read the book of Esther, it is almost like a Cinderella story. Story of a poor orphan girl who becomes queen of one of the largest, most powerful empires in all of the world. And although it is a true story, it's almost like once upon a time kind of a story. It's such a beautiful narrative. Esther is one of two books in the entire Bible named after women. Just so you don't think that women are insignificant, they play a very important role in God's plan for the ages. In fact, as you read the book of Ruth, the book of Esther, these two women were mighty women of God who really changed the course of their history. There was a little girl in Sunday school and her teacher asked her if she knew the story of Adam and Eve. And she said, of course I know it. God first made Adam, then he looked at him and said, I think I can do better. And so he made woman. Esther teaches us one of the most, let me say, forgotten lessons. And that is the lesson of providence. The fact that God is still in control. God did not take a vacation and leave the world to just go downhill by itself and he's not going to do anything about it. God is on the throne. God arranges people's lives in such a way so that his will gets accomplished. And that is often forgotten in this world. I have a friend who on his desk he has a little plaque that says, God never panics. He's an executive and he's reminded of that as he is under the pressure every day to perform. And he's about ready to panic. God never panics. Now, we do panic. In fact, many of us are experts at it. When we cannot figure out the situation or our plan doesn't seem to fit, we feel like we've lost control. Oh, we start panicking. Our faith is ankle deep. Oh, we believe as long as we can see it. But when we can't see the outcome, when we feel like our resources are at their end, we start faltering. And this is a lesson we definitely need to look at again. We live in a generation that is, for the most part, in despair. They feel like the world is so out of control, there's no hope. As they listen to the gospel of Peter Jennings every night, and the gospel of Wall Street, 
of the boys from MIT and Harvard, the experts who are telling us that by the year 2000, there will be a nuclear holocaust on the earth. As people listen to that, they are in despair. They don't have anything to hold on to. And unless we believe that God is ultimately on the throne in control, we too are going to fall in the pit of despair. I have an interesting quote from a Nobel Peace Prize winner, a doctor of medicine and philosophy. In 1970, he was asked what he would do if he were 20. Listen to this despairing quote. I would share with my classmates the rejection of the whole world as it is. Is there any point in studying and work? Fornication, at least that's something good. What else is there to do? Fornicate and take drugs against this terrible strain of idiots who govern our world. Really an optimist, isn't he? The sovereignty, the providence of God. There is the setting that I want to recreate for you. I'm going to draw your attention now to verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the square in front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now let me tell you what's happening. The setting is the captivity. Remember that the Jews were God's privileged people. God said, you are the apple of my eye. My eye is on you from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. God took them out of Egypt, brought them through the desert, gave them a new land, Miracle after miracle. Amazing feat after amazing feat happened. Israel was now safe in her land. And God said, now, Israel, don't spoil a good thing. You've been depending on me all of these years, and I've been blessing you, I've done what I promised, but just don't spoil a good thing. Don't leave me. Don't start depending on yourself. Don't start looking around to the other nations to be like them. Okay, God, we won't. A few years later, they started sowing little seeds of independence. They wanted a king to be like everyone else around them. Later on, they wanted more freedom from God to be like everyone else around them. And then, eventually, they fully rejected God and followed Baal a pagan god, to be like everyone else around them. They were so given over to idols, and they wanted idols so badly that God gave it to them. You know, like a little kid who at Christmas time says, I want this, I want this. And you're thinking, why would you want that? Oh, but I want it, i got to have it. All right, here. We want idols. Oh, you want idols? All right. So God cured their idol-itis, by sending them into the idol capital of the world, Babylon. It's just what the doctor ordered. They wanted idols so badly until they were in 70 years of captivity by idolaters, then they were cured. God finally gave them a second chance. 
took them out of captivity and sent them back home to Israel. But the weird thing about it is that only a few people went. In comparison to how many people were in Babylon, only a very small percentage went back to do the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and inhabit the land. Most of the people stood in their place, stayed back in Babylon or in Persia. It was too comfortable. It was so nice in Babylon. I mean, why spoil a nice lifestyle? Persia was very wealthy. It was like yuppie suburbia for all these folks. Now, why spoil a nice lifestyle by doing something for God? I mean, obedience is so inconvenient. It's such hard work to change for the Lord. So let's just stay here. I mean, we have a two-camel garage, three-bedroom tent. I like it here. Now, there's a lot of God's people that are in that same situation. God wants to deliver them and set them free, but it's just so inconvenient to change. What do you mean, break up with my unsaved boyfriend? I mean, that's going to cause such a ruckus and such a hassle between our families. Well, we're living together and we're having sex out of marriage, but, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Or... You mean me? Share the gospel at work? Huh. They're going to think I'm loony. Why upset anybody? Should I leave my occupation to go where God told me to go? Oh, the wife won't understand. It's more convenient to stay here where it's comfortable rather than to go out and do what God, what I know in my heart God wants me to do. Now, another development has happened. Not only had they stayed back in Persia, but there's a guy, an enemy named Haman, who hates the Jews. And he thinks that every Jew who's ever been born should be put to death. And he tries to do what Adolf Hitler did in World War II. He wants to exterminate all of the Jews. So he has a bill passed in the Senate. Death to all Jews. Well, Mordecai was a Jew. We read about him in the first few verses. Esther was a Jew. And she's the queen. But the king doesn't know she's a Jew. And now all of the Jews are to be exterminated. And so the setting is we have a group of apathetic people of God who are about to be totally exterminated. Now let's look at the queen in verse 4. So Esther's maids. Now remember, she's a queen, but she's a Jew, but nobody knows it. Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. I'll show you why I'm sarcastic. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. She did the best that any good queen would do when people are about to be killed. Send some new clothes. Her entire race... Hundreds of thousands of people are about to be exterminated. But she says, well, here, Mordecai, here's some new clothes. This should make you feel better, huh? God had raised her up to her position. It was given to her by God. She was the most powerful woman in the known world. Her people, hundreds of thousands, are about to be obliterated. 
and she sends him a pair of designer jeans. Mordecai wouldn't even receive them. Get him out of here, I don't want him. And a dialogue begins as he tries to persuade her or shake her from that complacency that she's been in. You see, Esther was a Jew, but she's gotten so comfortable in this position that she's out of touch with the real world. She's out of touch with reality. She doesn't feel the nerve of sensitivity has been deadened. Her reaction is, well, let's go shopping. I think many of God's people, many churches are like that today. We build fortresses to keep us in and keep them out. And let's go and be blessed and we'll just kind of hoard all of the blessings, all of the goodness, and we'll let all those wicked people stay out of our doors unless they look and act like us. And the church has become a storm cellar rather than a hospital. In fact, many of us bury our heads in the sand like the ostrich. We don't even want to know what's going on out there because it's just too painful. And even when we hear it, sometimes we're just desensitized to the great need that we see out there. People are dying. They're going to face eternity without Jesus. Many of them are going to hell. And we're concerned about what the next Christian concert's going to be here. What we're going to wear Sunday morning. If it's going to look right. We can lose touch. The reality of sin as it wreaks havoc upon so many people. Now the Lord has blessed us. Given us some property, a nice building, sort of. It's getting nicer. And it's going to look nice one day. But God help us. Not to just become so introverted and look at, oh, we have a nice, comfortable building now, and now we have carpet. And become just a fortress. And lose touch. And lose that focus of outreach. Of reaching the world. Of reaching sinners where they are. Oh, if that ever happens, I'm going to be the first to head out the door. If God doesn't change it. Keith Green wrote a song before he died. And the words of one of the verses are, Bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. That's all I ever hear. No one cries, no one weeps, no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. But we just lay back and keep soaking it in. In the book of Amos, he said, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, who have become so comfortable that they've lost touch with the needy world around them. They're just concerned about little, tiny little problems in their lives that are so small and ridiculous in comparison to the greater needs. And the very reason that we're on this earth, God has kept us here, is to actually meet those needs. Some of us have even built clever little devices in our brains to filter out information. Little filtering devices that many of us have that even when we hear a message or a sermon that is intended to shake us and move us, we somehow rationalize it. It's for somebody else. It's not for us. And so we can carefully manipulate what's being said and walk out unscathed. 
and our consciences are being seared as with a hot iron. God help us not to be like Esther when we see a need, not to just throw out some token thing to appease our conscience, but to get involved and to have the heart of a little child, tender, compassionate, willing to do something. I heard a quote that is so true. It says, The devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping Christian. The devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping Christian. Oh, keep rocking that cradle. Go to sleep, little Christian. Yeah, that's good. I'll even rock it for you just so you'll just stay right where you're at. Uh, He's always got time for that. The dialogue continues and Mordecai says, Wake up, Esther. This is important. People are going to be exterminated. we got to do something. And God begins to work on her. But look at verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law to put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Now she expresses a legitimate concern. The government was set up so much that if you were to walk in and say, hey king, I have a request, even if you were the king, if he didn't invite you in by holding up his scepter, off goes your head. It's dangerous business. And so she asked him, Mordecai, do you want me to risk my life? Now think about that. I could die. Well, sweetheart, you're going to die anyway. Because you're a Jew. And there's hundreds of thousands that are going to die. See, she's really concerned just about her own neck, her own comfort. Not the comfort of not only herself, but the whole race of Jews that are about to be exterminated. Now, Mordecai takes the exhortation knob and turns it up to ten. He says in verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace more than all the other Jews. Hey, Esther, you're not going to escape by in this problem. They might not know that you're a Jewess now, but somehow... It's going to come out. They'll look at the records of genealogy. They'll discover that you're a Jew and it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It never changes and you're going to get killed. So don't think you're going to escape just because you're the queen. And then he utters one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There are three great lessons in verse 14 for us. Three great lessons that underline some beautiful principles. I've called them purpose, participation, and providence. Look at the first part of verse 14. Let it sink in. For if you remain completely silent, At this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, Esther, if you flake out, if you refuse to obey God and what he's called you to do, 
God's going to do it anyway, and he'll use probably somebody else. If you fail to be the instrument that God will use to deliver his people, God's still going to deliver his people. You just won't be the one to do it. But it will arise from another place. You know, there's one thing that bothers me, and that is pressure. That is trying to pressure God's people into doing something or giving something. And quite often the ministry is more guilty than anyone else of using pressure tactics and emotional pleas to motivate a person solely out of guilt. If you don't give, this radio will go off the air, our ministry. And it's up to you. You who are sitting around not giving your last penny. Now, if you hammer on that long enough, people will get so guilty or so sick and tired of hearing you, they'll finally give something. If you don't go to the field, no one will. If you don't do this, if you don't give, it says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, let everyone give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, that is not out of pressure or guilt, not out of necessity, for God loves a hilarious giver. Don't let anyone pressure you. Don't be motivated by guilt or pressure. You should be motivated out of love for God. So, hey, if God calls upon you and tells you to go do something, if you refuse to obey him, God will still reach those people. God will still meet the bills, the needs. He'll do it through somebody else. God is able without you to do his will. That is, if you think you are the only individual who can only meet the need, well, I'm just going to refuse to do it if God doesn't see it my way. Fine. Shelved. I'll find someone else who's open. And I will use that person who wants to do it. But deliverance will arise from another place. Remember that God can make rocks cry out and praise him. Remember when Jesus was going into Jerusalem and the Pharisees said, hey, your disciples are praising you too much. They're saying, Hosanna to the king of David. Tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, if I told them to be quiet, even these rocks around here would begin praising God, would cry out. Or look at Balaam. God opened the mouth of a donkey. If God can open a donkey's mouth, he can open the mouth of any child of God. And there's hope for us. God reminds me of that every time I think, wow, I really preached a good one today. Wow, I'm powerful. God says, I used a donkey, remember? Don't pat yourself too much. Folks, God has unlimited resources. Resources you and I know nothing about. He can find a way when there is no way. When the children of Israel were on their way from Egypt, the easiest route would have been to go directly north up by the Suez Canal along the coast into the land of Israel. But did they go there? Oh, no. God led them into a perfect cul-de-sac, a trap. They went up to the Red Sea. They couldn't get through. I mean, there's water in front of them. To the right, there's mountains and desert. To the left, there's mountains and desert. So they go, okay, we'll turn back and go another way. As soon as they start going back, the Egyptians are there and they're closed in. And they start crying, oh no, what are we going to do? There's no way out. Like we do a lot of times. And Moses begins praying. He gets real spiritual and God says, Moses, be quiet. 
Now is not the time to pray. Now is the time to move. Stretch out your rod over the sea. The waters parted and God gave them away when there was no way. God's resources are unlimited. If you refuse to do it, God can still get it done. Deliverance will arise from another place. Mordecai knew that. He knew that God would get it done. How? He didn't know. That he would, he was assured. Every now and then someone will come and say, will you give this special announcement this morning? You know, nobody's been signing up for this or nobody's been doing this. Everybody's complacent. We've got we to gotta tell them to get involved. If they don't get involved, the work won't get done. Hey, God is bigger than the sign-up sheets in the foyer. God is bigger than the desires that we have to get something done. God will handle it. Now you hear that and you go, Skip, thank you for sharing that. Oh, that takes a great load off me because I have been feeling convicted lately that the Lord wanted me to do something and I just haven't been doing it, but now I know I don't have to do anything. Well, let's read the next part of the verse. But you and your father's house will croak. That's my free translation. I better get back to the verse. You and your father's house will perish. You see, God will do it anyway. With you or without you. But he wants to use you. He can do it without you, but he wants to use you. He wants you to be a joint participant. A shareholder. Have it a joint venture. As Paul said, we are workers together in the ministry that God has called us to do. We get... We have an opportunity. We get to work with the Lord. Folks, there is nothing more exciting to me than serving the Lord. There's nothing more exciting for me than sharing the gospel, than teaching Bible studies, than just doing what God has called me to do. I have desires like all of you do. I like to go skiing. I like to travel. Those are fun things, but the most exhilarating experience is when I'm performing the ministry God called me to do. There's nothing that's more of a blast than that. I hope when I die, I die preaching a sermon. I enjoy it so much. I love just pouring my life out in the ministry. It is fun. So God says, hey, or Mordecai tells Esther, God's going to do it, but you're going to miss out. You don't have to miss out. You can be a participant in doing what the Lord wants you to do. Some of you have never tasted that. Some of you have never tasted what it's like to be really used by God. You don't know the excitement that it can bring. The exhilaration to know I'm in the will of the Lord. I've done what God called me to do. But you need to step out and make yourself available and be like Isaiah who said, take me, Lord, send me. I'm available. Let's look at the last part of verse 14. Yet who knows... Oh, I like that. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, have you ever thought that perhaps the whole reason you came from a poor orphan girl and got to be queen was not so you could be queen for a day? You didn't win a beauty contest just to parade yourself around. But have you ever thought that perhaps God brought you up to this position just for this particular time in history? For such a time as this? Have you thought, Esther, that this could be your life's mission? The whole reason you're created and brought to this place? 
was for this strategic time in the kingdom to plead the Jewish cause before the king. Maybe this is exactly why you're here. Mordecai recognized that God has a purpose and a plan for each of our lives who are Christians. That the Lord arranges people, events, and circumstances so that His will gets done. God is like a stage director who gets props and people and puts them in sequence and in order so that a play can go through right on target. The word for that, by the way, is providence, divine providence. It's where God takes ordinary events and manipulates them so that in the end his will is accomplished. And that's a truth that a lot of Christians don't realize. Hey, God is in control. And perhaps the very reason I'm here is it's been a stage, it's been a setup. And I'm here to perform this one thing. Maybe God wants me to do it. I've come for such a time as this. Let's talk about providence just for a moment. The word providence comes from a Latin word, two words, pro, which means before, video, which means to see. Pro video. It means that you act based on what you've already seen. Now, this is how it works, if I can use it in terms that 1987 suburbians can understand. God takes a videotape of your life. He sticks it in his heavenly VCR. And it plays before him. He already knows what the end is before you start. Because he knows what he has already seen before, he bases his activity so that in the end, as he arranges the events of your life, his will is accomplished. There's a difference between providence and the miraculous. Now, God works in miraculous ways, too. But the miraculous is different. When God performs a miracle, it is divine, dramatic intervention. It's not normal. It's not ordinary. Some people say, well, the sun rises every morning. That's a miracle. Well, no, it's not. It's happened for a long time. That's ordinary. But when God intervenes in history dramatically, that's miraculous. Providence is different. God takes ordinary events and lines them up so that when the end is discovered, it can become the will of God. And as we submit ourselves to the Lord and his providence, we become instruments to do his will. That's exciting. The events in my life, the events in your life, aren't just coincidental if you're submitted as a child of God to the Father. All of those events were arranged by the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has foreordained or prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared those good works way in advance that you should walk in them. God gives us setups, divine appointments, and we need to be listening and watching for those things. One night I went police chasing with Dan Sanchez in his state police car. I said, I want to see what it's like in the the rough shift in the rough part of town. And so we were cruising around and he had a shotgun loaded on the floor and he told me how to use it. And, and I didn't know what that meant, but we're driving around town and we're picking up different people and talking to him. And one time there was somebody hitchhiking on the freeway in an illegal place instead of on the on-ramp. He was just hitchhiking. Dan picked him up 
And we, we stood by the side of the road, and the guy was shaking like, I didn't do anything wrong. I know I shouldn't be here, but Dan says, calm down. Do you know the Lord? And this guy said, now, wait a minute. A policeman being nice and sharing the gospel? We gave him food. We took him to the outskirts of town so we could get a better ride, and we shared the gospel with him. I got a letter two weeks later. He rededicated his life to the Lord. His mother wrote me and said, we've been praying for him for years, that the Lord would send the right person at the right time. And here it is, 11 o'clock in the evening, we pick up a guy on the freeway, and he ends up being the one God was speaking to. Just a setup, just at the right time. You've heard my Cheeto story, I don't have to tell you that again. Just the divine providence, how God works circumstances to do his will. You might think, yeah, but that happens just to important people. There was a Scottish minister who was so discouraged, he thought his ministry is a flop. At the end of the year, he took all of his annual reports to the board of elders and they looked them over and they concluded at the end of the board meeting that his ministry had been a failure that year. They said, the only person that we saw come to the Lord is that little kid, Bobby Moffat. Bobby Moffat became Robert Moffat, one of the greatest missionaries Africa had ever seen. A divine setup. Maybe you have come for such a time as this. Maybe this is your appointment. Now look at her response. Esther told them to return this answer to Mordecai. Gather all of the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. <laughs> That's great. God has touched her heart. She's sold out now. She think, she's thinking logically. She's thinking, what have I got to lose? If I hold my peace, I'm going to die anyway. I'm a Jew. If I go into the king, which is illegal, I may die. But I might not. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. What have I got to lose? At least he might listen. At least there's a chance. So, if I perish, I perish. That is exciting. Oh, man. How many Christians are paralyzed by fear? Fear to step out and do something because it just might happen if they do. This might happen. What a horrible way to live. Oh, I'm afraid to fly because I've always been afraid to fly. And what if it crashes? Hey, if you're going to die and your time is up, you're going to die in an airplane or some other way. If I perish, I perish. Well, I don't know if I should go off to the field because if I do, something might happen in that country. You're going to die anyway. Hey, what's the worst thing that can happen to your life? Death. Well, for a Christian, as we discovered last week, that's not too bad. Sudden death, sudden glory. Well, if the worst thing that can happen is that I die and go to heaven, man, then life is pretty neat, isn't it? It's an adventure. Because as I follow the Lord, as I'm committed to his work, if I perish, I perish. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Akua Indians, headhunters. As he was flying in to perform his mission, he uttered these words to the person, the co-pilot next to him. He said, a man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Again, a man is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain 
that which you cannot lose. Folks, God is moving in 1987. God has a plan to reach the world. God has a plan to work in this city. God has a plan in our midst. He wants to do it. He's going to do it. He can do it with you. And if you don't want to do it, he'll use somebody else and you'll miss out. But there are opportunities that God sets before you and who knows? Who knows? But that these opportunities are for such a time as this that God is raising up some of you to do his work. And what does it take? It takes a commitment. Not the first commitment of Esther that says, here, here's some nice clothes. I'm unconcerned. But a person who says, I'm going to go full on. If I die, I die. Who knows? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are raising many people up for such a time as this. They have come to this fellowship, to this city, for such a time as this. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand the times in which we live, the setups, the arrangements, so that we don't miss your purpose, your plan. We thank you, Lord, that your work goes on through individuals. We want to be those individuals. We want to be right in the middle of a dramatic move and revival of God. Lord, I pray that we will not harden our hearts, become so comfortable that we filter out those things that you're trying to teach us. I pray, Lord, that we'll give up what we can't keep so that we can gain what we can't lose. In Jesus' name.